Have you ever walked up to a pharmacy counter at your local CVS or Walgreens and asked for a prescription only to be told that the price of a given drug was way higher than you expected? This happens almost every day in the United States. Some patients pay and some patients want to pay, but they just can't afford it. This happened to me a couple years ago. I went to the eye doctor because I was having really bad dry eye symptoms. So my doctor prescribed me Zydra, an eye drop solution that I later found out at the CVS counter was $600 per month just for eye drops. I paid for the first month and then never came back. So when I saw the documentary called White Coat Rebels, a documentary that focuses on how the universities allied for essential medicines are fighting big pharma in the States while debunking big myths they propagate to innocent patients who need medical care, I knew that I needed to learn more. My guest today, Dr. Netta Ashtari, was in the forefront of this documentary and is with me now to shed light about the pharmaceutical industry and especially the things that they don't want us to know. How do pharmaceutical companies develop drugs? Where does all of the money go? Do we really need to market drugs if they're safe and efficacious? And so much more. Before we get started, here's what you need to know about Netta. Netta is a first-year internal medicine resident at Yale New Haven Hospital. She became involved with the University's Allied for Essential Medicines, or UAEM, in her first year of medical school and soon co-founded UCLA's UAEM chapter. Her efforts have largely revolved around the UAEM Extandi campaign an advocacy initiative aimed at increasing access to a life-saving prostate cancer drug developed on UCLA's campus. Outside of these roles, Netta also enjoys working with several other advocacy organizations. During her time at UCLA, she served as co-president of the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine American Medical Student Association, or AMSA, and was co-chair of their Nationals Farm Free Campaign and legislative director of UCLA Graduate Student Association. Her interests include ensuring access to health care for justice-involved youth and research translation to policy. Netta plans to pursue a career in both clinical medicine and health policy. I'm going to go ahead and channel some Gen Z energy and say that lots of tea will be spilled during this interview. My name is Hethel Bauman. Thank you for being here. And this is the Global Health Pursuit. Okay, welcome to the Global Health Pursuit podcast, Netta. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Yay. The way that we connected was really, really interesting. I was on a flight to San Diego and I was like, I want to watch a movie or something. And I get on the little screen and I start just scrolling through all of the movies. And I'm like, meh, meh, meh. And then the last movie was White Coat Rebels. And I was like, huh interesting what is this about 
And then um, I just saw it and I'm going to read the abstract you find online. It's yeah. White Coat Rebels follows idealistic medical students and iconoclastic doctors who battle the structural inequities of he- America's healthcare system in which their physician's oath to, quote, do not harm is challenged by the insidious power of the global pharmaceutical industry. So I think that just like hooked me and I was like, I need to watch this. So then when I watched it, I I saw you, Netta, and I was like, this is really cool. I need to reach out to her. She's probably famous from this documentary, um, but she's probably, I don't know if she's going to, you know, say yes to getting on the interview. And so I reached out to you on LinkedIn and you were like, sure. So I think this conversation is going to be, I don't know, like maybe a little bit controversial, a little bit, I don't know, you know, talking about big pharma is always a little bit like weird in a sense, but we're going to get into all of it, what your work is at UCLA and what you're doing, what your story is, and kind of bust some myths that we've been told by the pharma industry. So let's get into it. Netta, tell us a little bit about your story and how did you get so passionate about fighting big pharma? Yeah. So first of all, I'm not famous. (laughs) I will say (laughs) very awkwardly, I was getting a pap smear last week. And as my gynecologist is doing the pap smear, he's like, are you in a documentary? And I was like, this is the weirdest chosen, but yes. He's like, I saw you on the plane. So I've hit. He said that too? Yeah. What? It's happening, you guys, I guess, on the plane. There's literally nothing else. So you guys are forced to watch me. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story for those of you who haven't. So like many other advocates, I came to this access to medicine space because of a personal story. And in my case, it was my mom being sick with breast cancer. And so she was diagnosed when I was four years old. And in the beginning, everything was normal. She underwent chemotherapy. You know, all I knew at that time was she was my mom seemed to be asleep constantly and then sometimes forgot to pick me up from school, which I later found out was chemo brain. But then, you know, as time went on in 2008, she was dropped from her health insurance by Anthem Blue Cross because at that time you weren't protected against pre-existing conditions. And that's really when everything changed in my life um, because we had to pay for every single treatment out of pocket every lab test, every doctor's appointment. And with a single shot of chemo costing thousands of dollars, it was impossible for my dad to pay the bills. And it was impossible for any really American to pay those bills. And, you know, eventually we he lost his business and we lost our home because of um, the medical bills. And finally, you know, my mom and I received notice that she needed urgent spinal surgery because of the cancer which had spread to her spine. But when we were waiting and waiting for insurance companies to give us the paperwork and do prior authorizations, the cancer just spread through her body, went to her liver, then to her brain, and then she passed away while we were waiting for the authorization. How long was that Was that period? So that was months. So there was an order of two to three months of filling out paperwork and just being on the phone all day with these companies. And they made it as difficult as they possibly could for us to access treatment. And that's something, unfortunately, that people are still suffering with today. And we'll get into that. But 
you know, that was kind of when I realized that I didn't just lose my mom to cancer. I lost her to a healthcare system that prioritized profits over her life. And that kind of led me on this journey of wanting to dedicate my life to fixing this broken healthcare system and preventing other people from going through what I experienced. Talk about what you're doing right now. So you're, you're at UCLA in medical school. Yes. Yeah. So I went to, so then I ended up in medical school. I'm, I am at UCLA, like you said, and I'm going into internal medicine at Yale. And you just got matched, what, two weeks ago? Um, I think like three weeks ago now. I don't know. It's all a blur. So I'm finally going to be a doctor after a thousand years of school, which is amazing. And I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky that I love medicine because I can't even imagine doing something I didn't love. But while I was in medical school, I immediately after starting, I found out that UCLA had developed this drug called Extandi or Enzalutamide. And they had made this drug unaffordable by selling the license to it to biotech and pharmaceutical companies without making sure that those companies would then set the price at an affordable cost so that people could actually access their publicly funded medication. And so that's kind of the story that was told in the movie was me and other universities allied for essential medicine students, which is an organization that fights universities for publicly funded drugs to be available to the public. We all protested for years and met with the administration and eventually We were able to change drug licensing policies at UCLA and also the UC system through this plan called the Affordable Access Plan. For our listeners who might not know how a drug comes to market, how pharmaceutical companies actually develop these drugs, can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So every year, around 40 billion U.S. dollars of taxpayer money go to 2,500 universities across the United States. And these funds are used for the basic science research that later goes into developing the drug that comes to market. So once universities have this money, they're using it in their laboratories to come up with the smaller molecules. And that's what basic science research is. And once they find something that seems promising, so they find a a drug that might work for prostate cancer um, and that they know probably will work and be profitable, then the technology goes to our technology transfer office at the university. This technology transfer office meets with biopharmaceutical companies and then sells the license to the drug. This allows those companies, the biopharmaceuticals, to conduct larger scale clinical trials, but more importantly for them, to start advertising and marketing and making profits off of the drug. And there's absolutely no mechanism that universities are using to make sure that once they hand off this drug to pharmaceutical companies, that it will be affordable for consumers in the U.S. and abroad. Considering public taxpayer money went into funding and developing the drug, we should have access to it once it comes to market. But in reality, we're paying twice. We're paying once for the funding and development of the drug, and then we're paying again when we get to the pharmacy counter. And the costs that the pharmaceutical companies are setting have nothing to do with the cost of developing the drug itself, which is how you get these costs at whatever price the market will bear not based off of the value or the innovativeness of the drug itself. 
that yeah, I mean that point that you made around how we're actually paying twice that I, I <laughs> that didn't even like register. It makes a lot of sense because yeah, I mean we're paying taxpayer dollars to actually develop, and then we have to pay on top of that. Probably not this like probably multiple times the amount that we actually paid. Oh yeah. my gosh, what was Xtandi? What was the drug for? Yeah, so an enzalutamide or Xtandi is a drug for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and it's actually the only effective drug for this subset of prostate cancer. It had been developed with millions of NIH and Department of Defense grants, which is our taxpayer dollars. And this money then goes to universities across the U.S. to do basic science research. And in our case, that basic science research led to the development of this prostate cancer drug, Xtandi. The problem is, is they these universities are using our money to fund the riskiest parts of drug development. Contrary to pharma saying we do the risk, we're taking the risk and that's why the prices are so high. And then pharmaceutical companies come to the university table. They then negotiate a price for the license of the drug after we already know that the drug works, right? So there's minimal risk involved there. And then they take the drug and they mark up the cost to whatever the market will bear. And they have no regard for the affordability here in the U.S. or abroad. And so that's kind of the bigger picture issue is the way that we patent and license drugs is leading to this huge issue of unaffordability that that kills millions of people every year. You're saying that pharmaceutical companies will just set a price. How does how, how do they just set a price? Like, what is that process like for them? So it's genuinely whatever cost the market will bear, meaning let's say you're talking about EpiPen, right? So EpiPen mm-hmm. has been on the market for years. This is not a new invention, a new drug. It's also a life-saving drug for, for kids and adults with uh, life-threatening allergic reactions. And it recently underwent a, mar- a price hike of 300% after already oh being on the market, right? So there's no research or development going into this. It's purely just setting prices to maximize profits. And there's no correlation. And I just want to emphasize, there's no correlation between the cost of a drug and its clinical benefit or its innovativeness. Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. Oh my gosh. Okay. Already like 10 minutes into the conversation and I'm like mind blown. Can you talk about, first of all, American population, the amount of debt that we're in compared to other companies, compared to others countries? Sure. So here in the U.S., we know that about 30 percent or one third of patients report not filling a prescription because of the cost. 
We also know that compared to other countries that are industrialized nations, we pay between two to three times higher the, the price that they pay for our drugs. Pharmaceutical companies like to say that this is because Americans have better access to more innovative drugs. But actually, studies show that we have pretty much equal access across the board to drugs. It's purely the issue. The issue is purely the cost of the drugs. It's not that we get more prescriptions. It's not that we get better drugs. It's just that we pay a higher cost. In terms of debt, medical bills are the number one cause of debt and have been for several years for Americans. And four out of 10 or 40 percent of Americans have some sort of healthcare debt. And then Throughout the U.S., about 34 million Americans have lost a friend or family member because of unaffordable prescription drugs. And so really, we're looking at the wealthiest country in the world, and we're seeing that we are forcing people to ration their insulin and other life-saving drugs. We're forcing people to foreclose on their homes, to choose between the roof over their head and the cost of their chemotherapy. And U.S. prescription drug spending has increased about 80% between the year 2000 to 2017, and it's actually only expected to grow. So prescription drug spending is going to become a larger share of the GDP, and the overall cost is going to rise at about four times the rate of general inflation. So this is not a problem that's improving. So you're saying it's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. And Globally, there are 2 billion people who live without access to essential medicines. And, you know, what's really devastating is a lot of these medicines are just things like antibiotics, right? So an estimated 6 million people die annually in low and lower middle income countries because of lack of access to antibiotics, which cost pennies to manufacture and to distribute. So um, this is a really a global issue. It's, it doesn't just affect the U.S. It affects all of us. And that's why I think it's so easy for people to get behind. I mean, I feel like I can relate so much to this. Like I, I spoke to you about this in our first conversation where I, I have pretty bad dry eye. And when I went to the eye doctor, he prescribed me this dry eye medicine. It's called Zydra. And there's no generic version of it which is like kind of like why I go up to the prescription, you know, the, the CVS counter. Yeah. And she goes, Oh, this is $600. And I'm like, what? So then I just, I bit the bullet like one time, but I was like, I cannot do this multiple times. So this just makes a lot of sense. I also know people who don't have healthcare just because they're starting their own businesses and they can't afford to pay for healthcare on them, you know, themselves. I mean, I had to pay for healthcare myself out of pocket last year after I quit my job, and I still had to pay like exorbitant amounts in copays. Yeah, and and pharmaceutical companies, sorry, will often say that you know, well, these people have health insurance, so a lot of them don't pay any copays. But no matter what, somebody pays, right? And so if you're setting the cost of a drug at an exorbitant price and saying, well, the health insurance company pays, then the health insurance company is going to raise our premiums and deductibles the following year to make sure that they keep their part of the profit. Nobody's willing to give up money. We're all just playing the system and pulling levers to make sure we can maximize our profit. And, you know, I'd really like to address when you say why are companies allowed to block generics from coming onto the market. And that's really the crux of the issue, right? So 
we used to think that patents were for in, were granted for innovation. So the idea is that you will incentivize drug makers by granting them a patent for innovative discoveries to allow them to bring that drug to market into profit for 20 years. That's supposed to be how long a patent lasts. But that idea has gone completely out the window. And these pharmaceutical companies have learned how to game the patent process in order to maximize their profits and to essentially create monopolies on life-saving drugs, extending their patents from 40 up to 100 or more years for a single drug. How does that work? Like, what, what do they do? So they essentially use a number of strategies. One of the biggest things that they do is they, well, first of all, they file many patents. So they, on average, file 140 patents per drug, not one drug, one patent, right? So they're filing patents on the manufacturing process, on small compounds that are of clinical irrelevance. That's one strategy is the number of patents they file. Another strategy is they're filing patents on what are called Me Too drugs. Me Too drugs are slight modifications of drugs that are already on the market. But because these are considered quote-unquote new drugs, they're able to extend the monopoly on the drug without other generics entering the market. And we actually know that 8 to 9 out of 10 drugs that pharmaceutical companies file patents on are for existing drugs, meaning only 10% of the patents that they're filing are for new drugs. And we also know that studies show that there was a there was a huge study of about 75 cancer drugs that came to market in the last decade. And it found that the ones that were funded by pharma, 75% of them did not even extend life by a single day. So these are also the most expensive drugs because they're the new biologics and these are the ones that are targeting, you know, immunotherapy and so they're setting these prices at prohibitive costs, giving hope to families for new drugs and making these promises on commercials. And really, people are losing their entire life savings on things that will not even extend their life by a single day. And we also know that that public taxpayers are the ones who fund the most innovative drugs. So in terms of another really interesting study that was done between 2010 and 2016, showed that every single drug approved by the FDA during that time period was publicly had some form of public funding that contributed to its development. And the drugs that are publicly funded are far more likely to be designated as first-in-class drugs. First-in-class drugs mean they have a novel mechanism or they actually prove some clinical benefit. Whereas the one the Me Too drugs, like I said previously, have no real clinical benefit. They're simply more expensive and have no benefit at all to consumers. That reminds me of when I was working in ortho and orthopedics, a lot of our new products would be, you know, they had to be equal or better. Right. And that reminds me that like, okay, so you could just keep creating new drugs that are equal to old drugs and keep putting them out on the market and it wouldn't even matter. That's exactly right. Essentially, what you're saying is is very, very problematic in that every other country in the world, their equivalent of the FDA or their regulatory body that bring that a- approves drugs coming to market is allowed to mandate cost effectiveness and comparative efficacy trials, meaning 
those countries do not allow a drug to come to market until the company has proven that it's better than what's existing on the market, better than the existing gold standard, and that it's as cost effective as the existing standard. Our FDA in the U.S. is prohibited from forcing companies to do these comparative efficacy or head-to-head trials. And this allows them to bring a new drug to market simply by showing that it's better than a placebo, not better than the existing gold standard. And this also makes things really difficult for doctors because they have no way of comparing drug A and drug B because they've never actually been compared in a randomized controlled trial. And so this is how they're bringing drugs to market, which show no benefit and also actually have very real harms. And the vast majority of drugs that have been recalled in the last decade were actually funded by pharma through this accelerated approval process that they use to speed drugs to market with no questions asked. And then they end up having these often devastating consequences for patients in terms of harms, in terms of not helping health outcomes, and in terms of financial devastation. I have a big question for you then. So speeding drugs to market. Now, when we, obviously, COVID, the COVID pandemic, you know, was huge in 2020, 2021. And pharma companies were creating like multiple COVID drugs, right? One from Mm -hmm. Moderna, Pfizer, all of those. And they were speeding the process up, you know, to get, what is it called? Yes, it's emergency preauthorization. Emergency preauthorization. So do you have any thoughts about that? Because I know there are people, obviously, that are that were very hesitant to taking the vaccine because of this, the lack of, I guess, clinical studies and all of that kind of stuff. But then there was like, you know, it's a catch-22. It's like, are you going to take the vaccine or are you going to wait till it's clinically proven? And so I I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So a lot of people have a misconception that these vaccines came out of thin air and that that we were just throwing compounds together without any idea of how these things actually work. The reality is the technology and the information that was used to develop these vaccines has been around for decades. We were just using much of what was already known about coronaviruses, which are an entire family of viruses, um, the same ones that caused the SARS, MERS pandemics. We were, we already knew all this information about these viruses, which allowed us to manufacture these drugs in this very short time period. And that is, that is what really the crux of why these vaccines are allowed to come to market. And this is actually the purpose of the preauthorization or the accelerated approval process for these sorts of global emergencies where a vaccine needs to come, not for the reason why pharmaceutical companies are bringing random biologic drugs to market and new forms of Humira and arthritis drug or all these other drugs that actually have no emergency need. And like, how do they prove that, oh, this is like an emergency, we need to get this out to market real real fast? So they basically use what are called surrogate endpoints in trials, in clinical trials. And so during the HIV AIDS epidemic, there was the introduction of the use of surrogate endpoints in clinical trials. Surrogate endpoints are outcomes in a study that are supposed to they're supposed to be equal to clinical endpoints, which are things like overall survival. So let's say I have a drug, a new chemotherapy drug, okay? And actually, sorry, let me use HIV drugs. 
So for HIV drug, you can use a surrogate endpoint such as the T cell count, which is a type of immune cell, as a surrogate marker when you're trying to see if a drug is effective or not, because the way that HIV works is it kills these T cells. And so whether you feel good and how long you live actually depends on the number of T cells in your blood. So there's a correlation there between the clinical benefit of the drug and this marker, which was the T cell count. But now pharmaceutical companies are using surrogate endpoints to bring these drugs to market in the accelerated approval process. So they might prove that a drug decreases the number of eosinophils, a different type of cell in multiple myeloma. But that isn't actually correlated at all with anything that's relevant or clinically beneficial. It doesn't mean that you're going to live longer or that your quality of life will be better. It's just a random marker that you're using to say, oh, well, this drug does this random thing and therefore we need to bring it to market because it's novel. It's a new thing. But if it's completely clinically irrelevant, that has no use to any of us and it leads to worse health outcomes and higher costs. Does that make sense? And and they also use a whole different host of methods. So, I mean, over 80% of people who sit on FDA advisory committees get payments from pharmaceutical companies, which is really, like, really crazy if you think about it. It's like a huge conflict of interest. Right. I mean, think about, you know, if you were sitting on a jury and you were in a court case and there's this information that can be interpreted in a subjective way by the jurors, would you feel comfortable with the lawyers giving payments to those jurors before they make their decision? Of course not. So why are we okay with pharmaceutical companies and biopharmaceutical companies paying off the people who write the clinical guidelines and the people who are in charge of approving drugs, they come to market and stay on the market for decades. It doesn't make any sense. It's a huge conflict of interest. It's something that we don't talk enough about because it's uncomfortable. I mean, on top of that, doctors are paid as well while they're developed, right? While drugs are developed. They do the same thing within the medical device industry where we have design surgeons. Right. And so design surgeons is really funny. I've never heard that. So these doctors, yeah, they're engaging in a lot of practices that they claim are valid reasons to take payments from industry. And in reality, there are things like ghostwriting. So I don't know how it's kind of sounds like these surgeons that you're talking about. Ghostwriting is basically when a pharmaceutical company runs a clinical trial and then they put some big dog researcher doctor's name on the paper in order to be like, look, this thought leader approved this. And that way it gets published in a big journal, who, by the way, edit, journal editors are also paid off. Then it gets published in a journal. And we already know that the journal articles that are published by commercially funded drugs are much more likely to show positive benefit and to speak highly of drugs compared to those that are funded by public corporations. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, we know that 50 to 100 percent of articles that are written in journals are ghostwritten. So they're written by doctors who have not actually had anything to do with the clinical trial. A lot of times people will justify it by saying, well, these are the experts and therefore we're having the experts run these trials or come and give lectures at pharmaceutical industry meetings, etc., But in reality, we also know that these are not actually the experts, that when one study looked at doctors who were paid off for multiple sclerosis drugs, 
it showed that those doctors had absolutely no expertise in the field. They were simply doctors who were capable of prescribing that drug. And then they were flown across the country and paid thousands to millions of dollars to promote these drugs to different doctor groups and also to industry as a whole. Wow. Okay. I want to go back. I want to talk about the amount of money that the pharmaceutical companies actually use to create and develop drugs. So sure. So this is an an interesting topic in terms of, and a huge debate in the world of drug pricing is how much Mm -hmm. they actually pay because they will not show us their receipts. So oftentimes, so oftentimes drug companies will point to um, this study that came out of Tufts University that showed that the cost of developing a new drug is $2.6 billion. So this is the figure you often hear, $2.6 billion. There are so many issues with this study, the first and most obvious being that it was funded by pharmaceutical companies. The second issue with it is that it was completely non-transparent which drugs were included in the analysis and which companies were looked at. The third issue is that half of this $2.6 billion figure didn't actually come from companies spending money on developing a drug, but on lost earnings from the capital that would have gone into making the drugs. And the fourth issue with it is that it doesn't take into account the huge amount of funding that comes from the NIH and public taxpayers to develop the drug. So new studies have shown that the actual cost of developing the drug is not $2.6 billion, but closer between 14 to $90 million at most. And when you, when you put this into context, pharmaceutical companies spend three times more on marketing and advertising than they do on research and development. They spend over $300 million a year on lobbying to our politicians to keep the drug prices high. And that makes them the number one vendor in the capital. So they lo- they spend more on lobbying than oil, more than gas. And because of that, you have two pharmaceutical representatives for every one member of Congress on the Hill writing our laws. And then they also spend less than 8% of their revenue on research and development. So just to kind of review, three times more on marketing and advertising, Mm -hmm. millions of dollars more on lobbying efforts, and only 8% on average goes into research and development, despite their claims that, well, drug prices are high because we make innovative things and we take a lot of risks on research and development. It's it's 8%. Okay, can, okay, I need to ask you, what are these risks that they're talking about, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, so these quote-unquote risks are, they're referring to basic science research. So the way that a drug comes to market is we have public taxpayer money, like I said, Department of Defense and NIH funding. And this money goes to public universities. These university researchers are doing the work to develop a promising compound in the lab. You know, those ones with the TAs and the research Mm -hmm. assistants, they're working to develop the basic science formulation for a new drug. That is, by the the way, don't get paid at all, (laughs) basically. We pay them to do the research. (laughs) Right. And then once these people find a promising drug, Then pharmaceutical companies come to the table and they say, "Okay, thanks. Now that we know that this works, we'll take it off your hands and we'll do the bigger clinical trials because you don't have the capacity. And we'll also do all the advertising, marketing and distribution across the globe. And 
like I said before, they're saying that they're funding the riskiest research, but the riskiest research is happening before that conversation, before they come sit at the table and sign the license for the drug. So really, it's us, it's taxpayers who are funding innovation and not the pharmaceutical companies. And the risks are being taken by us, the taxpayers, and not the pharmaceutical companies. So the research that's being done in academia is more the risk. Yes, exactly. It's the basic science research. Right. So now moving into the topic of marketing, Mm -hmm. you said that pharmaceutical companies pay three times as much on marketing than on R&D. My question is, why do we need to market drugs? So we really don't need to market drugs. And in fact, we are the only country except New Zealand that allows pharmaceutical companies to directly advertise to consumers. And there was actually a new study that came out of Johns Hopkins that showed that companies spend nearly 15% more on drugs that have no clinical benefit than they do on drugs with clinical benefit. And that's really, really twisted because they're trying to get consumers to go to their doctor and say, hey, doc, I need this prescription. They know that the doctors who are reading the actual evidence are not going to go out of their way to prescribe these drugs, which is why they're spending more on promoting them directly. Oh my gosh. To yeah, so it's really, it's not great. And also, if you think about it, if drugs are really offering a benefit, nobody needs to tell the doctor or advertise to anyone. If you have diabetes, we know that you need insulin and nobody has to advertise it to us because you will go into diabetic ketoacidosis and end up in the emergency department. If you're having to market a drug to somebody, it's likely that that drug has absolutely no benefit or at least is not better than what's already on the market. I totally could. I did not actually think of that, you know, having to mark like they have to market drugs because they know that doctors are not going to prescribe them in the office. Wow. Right. I was thinking about this the other day because I was watching TV and there was a commercial on a hospital. Yeah. And I'm like, why do we need commercials for hospitals? Like we're not, we're going to go to hospitals regardless if we're feeling a type of way, you know? Right. But that's what I was thinking. I was like, why are we getting, why are we having commercials on hospitals? This makes zero sense to me. Yes. It also makes zero sense to me. And, it, you know, it's banned everywhere else. And doctors in other countries, actually, it's really interesting. They're not even allowed to use the name of a drug when they're talking to patients. They're only allowed to do it inside an office. They're not allowed to say brand names outside of the office with the patient, which is really crazy. So, like, let's say you watch a tutorial on how to inject Botox in Australia. They're not allowed to use the word Botox when they're get to doing the tutorial because they are not allowed to promote pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, we know that it works also. We know that doctors who do get these industry payments and, and free dinners are 58% more likely to prescribe that drug. They're more likely to prescribe that drug even if a better and cheaper version is available on the market as a generic. They're more likely to do the brand name prescription because of their conflicts of interest with drug companies. Wow. So, okay. Last question before we end. I didn't, I didn't mention this, but this is part one of two parts because I know this first episode is like 
very doom and gloom. (laughs) So we really need to talk about what we can actually do to escape all of this, like what things are in place that we can do to actually lower drug prices and things like that. But the last question I want to ask you, Nada, for this part, are there any other myths that you think that we need to know as consumers that might be that might still be propagated by pharmaceuticals. Yes. So I think the most important ones just to review are that increases in the cost of drugs do not correlate with the clinical value of a drug and they do not correlate with increased spending on research and development. So when drug companies are marking up the cost of an EpiPen, they're not taking that revenue and putting it into research and development. They're using it on shareholder buybacks and on executive bonuses. That is the number one most important myth for people to understand. They also need to understand that eight out of the 10 patents that these companies are filing on quote unquote new drugs are for drugs that already exist on the market. And then the last bit that I think is really important is that when it comes to higher drug prices, there often needs to be no reason at all for the increase. And there often is no reason at all for the increase. So these companies are actually making back the money that they spent on revenue on R&D within the first year or so of the drug being on the market. So if we take, for example, so Fosfuvir, which is a hepatitis. <laughs> first of all, why do we need to have names like this? Like, please. Here's, no. So if we take so Fosfuvir, oh my God, I can't. <laughs> I'm going to use a different example. So fast <laughs> Let's use Humira, which is an arthritis drug. So they spent $5 billion, they say, on R&D. And that was only about 7% of the, nets, of the net revenue of, on the drug in the first few years of sales. Meaning they're recouping those funds immediately. And yet they're using, they're marking up that same drug later after it's already entered the marketplace and after they've already made all their profits back that they spent on it. I think the last important thing would be that pharmaceutical companies recently have been shifting blame to PBMs or pharmaceutical benefit managers. Um, This is a tactic that they use to say that the rebates that they're giving consumers are being stolen by the PBMs who negotiate prices for pharmaceutical for things like for places like CVS. So for pharmacies mm-hmm. um, and also for hospitals. And so they say that, well, it's the PBMs fault. And that argument doesn't hold because, sure, somebody might be keeping a little bit of the profit made from negotiating a drug. But ultimately, you're negotiating from the list price of the drug. So it's the pharmaceutical companies that are setting the price at a million dollars for a regimen of immunotherapy. And then people have to negotiate around that. But ultimately, the pharmaceutical companies are the ones setting the price. So that argument isn't really a valid one. I think those are kind of the biggest the biggest things that we need to confront. And we need to understand that the idea that that R&D is funded by these high costs and that we will lose all access to innovative drugs is just a scare tactic used by pharmaceutical companies because we don't get more innovative drugs. We don't get better drugs. We don't get drugs that bring us any benefit. We just pay more for the same thing. And it's like, how many drugs can we get out in a year? Doesn't matter if they're better. It's just keep them coming. Just keep them coming. Just change the formulation a tiny bit. 
write a new patent for that. Exactly. Exactly. And and oftentimes they'll just file frivolous lawsuits. They pay off generic companies, people who want to bring a generic to market. It's called pay for delay. They'll just literally pay them these huge sums of money to stop them from bringing the generic to market. And they both benefit from that because now the generic company is getting a chunk of the profits and the pharmaceutical company gets its monopoly preserved. So there are all these tactics and it's really important for people to understand that these are all just lies propagated by pharma and scare tactics and that they have more money than us, unfortunately, which allows them to spread these lies far better than we can myth bust them. Wow. Well, this has been a really interesting episode. We're going to come back in part two and talk about what we can do as a consumer to escape all of this. I really hope you're subscribed to the podcast. Netta, we're going to talk soon. I, I've learned so much and I think my mind is kind of like, I kind of need to lay down after this because this is a lot of information, but it was so good. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to our next session. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you loved this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.